Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me each week. I have the privilege now after five years of still sitting in this seat, having the amazing opportunity to interview some of the biggest thought leaders in the world. Sometimes they are themselves best-selling authors, business titans, CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs, oftentimes they are celebrities themselves, or in many cases, it's also people who may not be a household name, but their research, their study, their field of expertise, or perhaps their survival from some tragic situation or set of circumstances where their resilience and tenacity uh, allowed them to pull through and come and tell their stories to make you a better leader. All those are the theme of this podcast. We're delighted that you continue to watch or listen to us now twice weekly on Tuesdays and on Fridays. Franklin Covey continues to be known as the most trusted leadership firm in the world. And to honor our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, whose own book, The Seven Habits, has sold nearly 60 million copies, we try to ground ourselves in what he termed an abundance mentality, meaning we have expertise in many particular areas, but we're not experts in everything which is why we feel a great privilege to take our platform and our spotlight, metaphorically and literally, and shine it on people that can bring you genius expertise from their own journey. And today, I'm delighted that Sarah Hardin is joining us. She is the CEO of Hello Sunshine, a name of a company I know you will remember as soon as she introduces herself. Sarah, welcome to On Leadership. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Scott. Sarah, when I originally booked you as a guest, we thought about having you on Franklin Covey's other podcast, CEO um, Focused. It's called C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller, where each week I'm privileged to about 12 feet over there on a different set, interview people from the C-Suite. However, your own career journey and your influence in terms of what you and Reese Witherspoon and your stakeholders have created to raise the level of literacy around the world through green lighting books into TV programs and movies and book clubs, I think is such a sweet spot because although Franklin Covey is not a publisher, we have sold you know, upwards of 65, 70 million copies of our nonfiction titles. And so I'm looking forward to having a great conversation around the role that books play, not just in your own life, but in those of your, your um, customers as well. Let's rewind a couple of decades. Yeah. And let's talk about your own career journey you were born where, and then what happened? Well, I was born in a, a pretty small town, I guess, a couple of hundred thousand people in Australia. And, um, you know, I was born to two pretty entrepreneurial parents, actually. And um, a lot of discussions around the dinner table around, you know, they were both, they both worked for themselves um, at different points. My mom had been a nurse earlier in my life and then my parents got divorced and she, and so there was a lot of discussion around business. There was always a newspaper at our house. Um, and uh, there was a curiosity, I think, that that ignited in me seeing my parents um, both make their way in the world. Um, and so I actually thought I wanted to be a journalist, um, but for, you know, one thing led to another and that's not the path that I went on, but I do, uh, I, I, I credit the sort of house I grew up in for igniting a curiosity around and, and being able to see two parents who worked for themselves. Sarah, talk about your path to Hello Sunshine. You have been a storyteller and a pollinator of storytellers for some time. Talk about your professional journey and what led you to uh, Hello Sunshine now. 
Well, it's interesting. As I said, I, I went to school and I did a Bachelor of Arts in politics and, and English and I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I ended up doing a summer internship and a funny uh, one of my, and at Procter and & Gamble and, mm. and um, I... It was the first time I, you know, like PNG hired in the early days. They, you know, I had a car and I had a territory and I I started in a summer intern as a sales manager. And actually the very first book I was handed and you had to practice how to write a business memo. And I was handed Stephen Covey's book by my manager at the time. And it's one of the first business books I ever read. And I had to write him a memo summarizing the lessons of seven habits, which I just, <laughs> I love this sort of full circle moment. Yes. Yeah. But that actually was a really formative experience and what it meant to go into a pharmacist and try and take an order. And, um, and, and so from there to here, it feels like a not mm-hmm. very linear journey, but, you know, in summary, I ended up out of, uh, out of college going and working at Boston Consulting Group and I was an experimental hire. They, I found out many years later because I didn't come from a traditional sort of English or, I mean, uh, engineering or commerce degree or law. And that also, um, you know, I had an incredible grounding there and an, and I, I, I didn't because I, I always had this, you know, when I started at BCG, I had this feeling like I was going to get fired, right? I definitely, I didn't have the qualifications and, and, you know, I learned a lot in that. And what it set up for me was an option to go to business school. And uh, and I did that and I applied and I um, got an Australian government scholarship and to Harvard Business School. And so I left Australia when I was 26. Um, and I have not been back. I mean, I'm very close to my home, but that set me on a different course, I think. And, and I really opened my eyes to a sort of entrepreneurship that I think is distinctly American. And so when I left business school, I didn't go back to BCG. I I ended up having to take out a bunch of loans. <laughs> and, um, and I started a company with a couple of guys that I went to, a guy, a couple of guys from MIT and, um, and a couple of guys from my class and moved to San Francisco. And that, you know, that was at the intersection of entertainment and technology. And I think that's been a through line of my career since then, right? I had a real curiosity about um, about consumers and entertainment and there was a through line from wanting to be a journalist actually. Mm. And, you know, I think from there that was, uh, I guess, 1999, so 24 years ago. And it's been a series of um, following that curiosity um, working in some bigger companies, both from my startup. I, I spent a lot of time at News Corp and at Fox, um, both in LA. I went and moved to Hong Kong um, in, uh, I spent five years in Hong Kong and came back to LA. And, you know, I um, always trying to fight, even when I worked at big companies in, in sort of business creative or entrepreneurial roles. And one of the things I always say is you don't have to go to a startup to work entrepreneurially, but you do have to be in a company that sets the conditions for that allows you to make things happen or create new businesses. And I did that when I was at News Corp. I worked in both business development and corporate development. I did that when I went to Hong Kong. And then I worked um, for uh, a man called Peter Chernan, who had been CEO of News Corp um, for a very long time and left to start an independent media company and uh, I had a role in creating businesses at the intersection of of media brands entertainment um and 
when I was doing that, and, and this was building companies that we had control stakes in, not sort of a venture model where we took minority stakes. And uh, Reese came in to meet us and she had the idea for this company. And that's when we first met. And I, when we started, I was her investor, first investor. And we started to build the business and one thing led to another. And I ultimately stepped in to run the company full time. And that was about six, seven, nearly seven years ago. And we've been building the company together ever since. Um, it sounds like a linear path, but it's anything but. Um, and it's still, uh, and what, what was linear, I guess, or what was a through line is, um, is, is, is following my curiosity and being very clear, I think, about putting myself in situations where I was working with people um, that I could learn the next, um, you know, the next piece of the business from. And I, um, and some, that was in some cases, small companies and, and working for very large companies, but always in pretty entrepreneurially driven roles. Sarah, I could spend the whole remaining time just talking about your career path, right? How much of it was accidental versus deliberate? Yeah. How much of it was serendipitous, but different day, different topic. I love to talk about Hello Sunshine because I'm not sure everyone listening to this program knows exactly what your business is and what your mission is. Would you describe that for us? Sure. We are a mission-driven company and we put women at the center of every story uh, that we create and champion. And, you know, our mission we talk about is to change the narrative for women. And it's a, you know, we have a driving belief. It's Reese's driving belief. It's the company's driving belief that storytelling can shift culture and can shift the way women get to walk through the world. And we describe ourselves as a media brand very purposefully. Um, I think a core part of our strategy when we set out to build the company seven years ago was we were going to put premium content at the center of what we did. So we create film and television shows that center women's experiences, many um, adapted from books. Um, and But in, when we launched the company, we launched our scripted division first, but we also launched Reese's Book Club um, on social, and we have a direct relationship with with audiences and consumers. So we both make content. There's really two parts of the company. We make content and storytelling, uh, both scripted and unscripted. Um, and we also take responsibility for audiences showing up for that storytelling. So we have a direct-to-consumer side of the company as well, and we've built, you know, we speak to 60 million women a week on social platforms. And I think when we started, we had a you know, what we saw was a very crowded content landscape and marketplace. And our belief was it wasn't enough to make storytelling, whether that's distributed on a, on a streamer like Netflix or, um, or Hulu or Amazon or on social, that we had to find ways and build advantage to cut through a, a noisy marketplace. So that's the business and we're a pretty balanced business. I, I say we, um, you know, we make content and we have a flywheel that we talk about and we then are able to speak to, to women directly and men as well. Well, our storytelling centers women, it's for very broad audiences um, and get them to show up uh, to watch those stories wherever they are. And um, that's driven our advantage. So yeah, we're six, six years into the company um, and really proud of of, of what we've built and what we continue uh, to build. And I, I will also say, while we have an outward facing mission, we've always talked about we're, we're very authentically constructed. So we, we can't change the narrative for women if we don't change it for ourselves. And um, that means for our employee base um, and 
you know, we talk about our insides, try to, we try to match our insides to our outsides and, um, and authentically construct the company in ways that serve um, our mission as well. Sir, I'm riveted talking with you as a seven-time author myself and a guy who likes to read books and has worked for Franklin Covey for nearly my entire life. I've also had the privilege of hosting a radio program, an iHeartRadio and a podcast, and I can barely keep up with the changing landscape of media, of all the mergers and the acquisitions and the divestitures and the shutdowns and the brand changes. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's dizzying. In this world where we have millions of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs watching this interview right now or listening to it. Yeah. What have you done right at Hello Sunshine? You all, I mean, you all have you know, sort of captivated the literary world by storm the last three or four years, it feels like, both in terms of you know, your valuation and the impact you have on all of your, your, your book club members. What have you done right as an organization that other people could apply to their own side hustle, to their growing business, to their conglomerate? What, what have you gotten right? Oh, I so appreciate that question. I, I think one of the things, and, and I say I don't think I could have built this company before I did it with Reese. Mm-hmm. And so I, there was a real intentionality about what we set out to build. Um, we had a very, we, we had a, we built a company around a view of how we thought the media business was going to look in the next five to 10 years. And we could have gotten that wrong, but uh, I think convening around a really clear perspective and having a, a driving vision that we didn't only think was timely. And, and we started the company right prior to Me Too and Time's Up. And I, and I think some of the reckoning that happened through those added some wind to our sails, but it was, we think a real, we, we saw a real gap and it was a gap based on, on data and, uh, and insight. And from Reese's perspective, working in the business for many, many years. And, and that gap that I call it is we, I, I talk about as the authorship gap, where if you looked at audiences who were consuming content across any platform, whether, a theatrical film or on social or on a stream or on broadcast or cable, they it's always 50% women at least. And, and in many cases, over-indexing on certain platforms. But if you mapped that to the construction of our media, who has green light authority, and frankly, to our advertising as well, when women drive 70% of purchase decisions, you see women for decades have been structurally excluded from the storytelling processes, directors or writers or filmmakers. And that felt to us a very powerful gap to build a business in because I think it stands to reason when you involve people in the construction of something that represents an authentic perspective, um, you will create different media that has a better chance of connecting with audiences who haven't seen their true lived experience properly reflected. And so I think we had a strong point of view you know, we were very, I think, we were very disciplined early on and I really learned a lot. I learned so much from Peter Chernin. Um, you know, one of the things he said to me and in early stage companies is with enough time you can get, you can sweat anything to be great. I, I think what happens in early stage companies is you run out of time. You spend money too quickly. You get... Uh, I think you believe your own hype if you get a little bit of early success. And I think we were very, 
very grounded right from the start of the company and very intentional in how we spent money. Um, and, uh, and, and I think the other thing was, you know, I don't think we believe that no one was going to do us any favors. And I do look, there is a narrative. I think women have often been excluded, whether it's from investments or all of the things, um, all of the reasons that I, I think sometimes, uh, women haven't felt empowered or they've felt structural bias against them. And all of those things are true. But I ultimately said we we thought we have to do better. We have to, that that exists, but it's, we, we have to go build a business in this environment, in these conditions. And so we take full responsibility for just executing better, being better. <laughs> um, and I wish that wasn't the case, but I think it was true. And so we were very careful in how we built the business early on. We didn't hire ahead of our growth, and uh, and I think that is that's that's the one thing. I think the second thing was recognizing that uh, it's a really talent-led business, and talent I mean executive talent-led business and creative talent-led business, and uh, we had to set a culture and a company environment that attracted world-class executives and then we were very very thoughtful about the culture and tone um, and making sh making sure that there was real integrity to the way we built the company and a belief that we would be able to punch above our weight in who we hired given our mission but then we had to really deliver internally so the first you know I've been involved in lots of startups where you know, you get to 50 people and the culture's broken before people start to think about, or there's real challenges, how to set tone. And so one of the first offsites we had when we were 10 or 11 people wasn't about growth. It was about culture and values. And, um, and uh, I think it's been huge for us in the way we've hired. We've invested a lot in leadership development of our team. And I think it's allowed us to both attract and then retain and then really grow executives internally um and so i think it was those two things and i mean there's certain there's certainly many other things that we didn't get right uh which i think is the case in any early stage company where you're trying to build boldly with a level of audaciousness but i think ultimately we had the time to make those mistakes course correct and we have a set of cultures and values that support us naming things that aren't working quickly mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. taking the learning and moving on from it as well. That's a great insight, right? Is building a culture where everyone feels comfortable calling out what's not working as soon as possible, including if it was your idea and you have that humility and vulnerability. As I've researched you, you talk a lot about conditions. You just did. In fact, I've heard you referred yeah. to as uh, kind of the conditioner, condition setter in chief, condition setter in chief as the CEO uh, talk to all those that are watching and listening, whether they're the leader of their team or division or platform or business unit or company, what does it mean to be the condition setter in chief? Like, like what does that mean in terms of how it feels, how it sounds, what it's like interacting with the condition setter in chief? You know, I think a couple of things that I would highlight, and particularly in a Hello Sunshine context, I really... I reject the sort of model of the CEO as the 
the sort of the genius CEO. I, I just, I don't think, especially in an integrated world and the business we were trying to build is a very integrated business in a world that's traditionally been quite siloed, right? You had siloed television departments from film departments from digital companies. So, so our core business strategy, building a media brand was about very integrated business under the hood. And that requires a level of collaboration and it requires a model of, I think, real collaborative leadership. So condition setting is not just an individual thing. It's something I share with Reese, who's the ultimate tone setter, convener, founder of the company, and then brought in our executive team. And then as we've scaled, you cannot scale a company if every individual can't scale their own leadership. That's really laddered down into the company. And as a high-growing company, then you know, asking my executive team to then scale their direct reports and to help the mid-career, mid-level of our company scale. It's all connected. And so I think one of the things I, um, I'm really, we, I always talk about standing shoulder to shoulder with our, with our team, but I also take 100% as, the, as ultimately the CEO, 100% responsibility for the conditions of our company. If I have a part of the company that has an unhealthy um, dynamic going on or a team that's deeply unhappy or in many cases, you know, managing through COVID and others, we've had, part, you know, real burnout in parts of our team. Ultimately, the the buck stops with, with me in addressing that. And so I think there's parts of accountability I take on and responsibility uh, as the CEO, but I believe, you know, in really building world-class companies, you you have to you have to lead in ways that invite like deep collaborative teamwork and to be able to move at the pace of a startup in ways that don't slow you down and getting that balance right is really really difficult um i think the other thing early on in a company and i've been through this is there's parts of the conditions that that i think are afterthoughts for people so the first is your capital structure Right. When you're an early stage company and I, I talk to a lot of, um, you know, I'm an active angel investor, I, I mentor founders, um, is they don't think about that at the start, but your capital structure and your board in an early stage company really set conditions. Who has decision making rights? How much time you have to manage to those shareholders? And we were very thoughtful right from the start about the capital structure of the company. I, uh, that included every employee at Hello Sunshine when we started the company had equity in the company because I had been through high growth builds and observed companies where you get a monetization event and only the top five or six people are making money. That changing the narrative for women doesn't work if, um, if we build a successful company and you know, all of those women and men who were part of building the company don't participate in that excess. So, so I think there's parts of the conditions are that people don't think about enough, a capital structure, board, uh, obviously your governance, they're all intimately linked. Decision-making, um, we've really had to address that. When we were 10, 20 people, decision-making was really, really easy. And, um, and then as we've grown and scaled, we had to push decision rights down, and so we 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 name and work with a lot of these. And I and I've brought in, um, you know, we we have a full time not full time, but we have 
someone who's worked with us since the early days of the company is a leadership development coach that we work with the team, the executive team. We've done all company leadership development as well because part of setting conditions from the top is then transferring them down through the org as you grow. And so I, um, I think it's my, I think it's the biggest role of, of, of the CEO and ultimately, you know, one of the dreams we did, it was funny, I was just looking at it because I'm doing some, uh, doing some work on sort of documenting the history of the company right now. And I was looking at some early work we did on setting the vision and we drew, you know, Reese and I and a couple of other executives, we drew sort of what's our vision for the company in five or six years, which is now it's 20, um, you know, it's 2023. And we said, we, I wanted a vision of, um, not only building successful company, but in 10 or 20 years time, the notion that the next generation of leaders in our industry spent a season of their career at Hello Sunshine. Mm. That felt so mm. powerful and energizing for me. And, um, and you know, I, it's, it's a big part of, of, of what we do, I think is obviously, I've got to wake up every day and drive our business success. And, um, and I think setting conditions that really both attract people, but when they're here, we get the highest and best use of their talents and their creative energy. And, um, and, you know, I think acknowledging that people come from very, very different contexts and, and some very different, difficult work experiences prior to hiring them. And that's been something we've really had to grapple with. I'm captivated listening to you. If the Hello Sunshine thing doesn't work out for you after all, Franklin Covey, I'm sure would love to have you in the leadership family. Sarah, one of the things that I researched about you, and I read several articles, interviews you did, was that you tend to be, a, a, you have very disciplined thought and disciplined action, that you're quite, I think, deliberate about what to say no to, and that you can spread ourselves, we all can spread ourselves, you know, too broadly. There will always be more good ideas than there is capacity to execute them. Seems like one of the ingredients that you've led at Hello Sunshine with your team is knowing what business you're in, but knowing business you're not in, and resisting the lure of different opportunities and ideas. To the extent that's true, what systems have you been taught or set up for yourself to know when a good idea might be coming at the expense of a great idea? Oh, such a good question. I mean, firstly, what I would say is I know my tendencies as a leader. So, uh, you know, I'm an Enneagram 7, so I lead with a bold vision, and I'm an optimist too. I really, I, my, one of my strengths is looking out, you know, two, four years and seeing where the industry's going and saying here's how we've got to correct the company. One of the things, a lot of the discipline is learned for me, and it's also who I have around the table in our executive team. I can tell you our team tendencies as uh, a team. We're very action oriented based on the sort of team Enneagram profile that we that our, our team has. And we've done a lot of that work together. Um, I think one of the things early on was really when I talk about constraining resources, uh, being very, I think there's a tendency when you raise money um, is to sort of build too fast and uh, get caught up with 
false measures of success. It's one of the earliest lessons I had doing my startup in 1999. You know, it was the heyday of the dot-com. We raised multiple rounds of venture capital. And I remembered having, going to, to parties in San Francisco, it was the hype, right? And people would say, what's your company? And people would lead with saying, well, our company has 100 employees, as though that was a measure of success. And I always thought it odd. I thought, isn't that just a measure for how much money you're spending? that seems to be a false measure of success. And there's a lot of false measures of success in this business and in this industry. And coming back to our mission and saying, wow, we don't change the narrative for the, for women unless we build a really financially successful company under the hood. And so one of the things I think is one surrounding myself with a team that we have really complementary skill sets and um, and important checks and balances and saying, you know, are we really ready to take that on? I think the second of realizing it's not enough to be good in this business. You have to execute with maniacal excellence and you cannot, you cannot, um, I kind of, you can't execute a forefront war at the mm -hmm. same time. I think you have to make choices in pursuit of doing few things really, really well. And I'll say there is times I've been too optimistic and, you know, I think the second or third year of the company, we were getting a little momentum and I saw some market opportunity and we ended up, you know, we were going to launch a full podcast network. I still love the audio business. And at the end of the day, it drew on some similar resources, some resources that were also building our unscripted business. And we had to say, you know what, we're going to put that off for six, nine months and, um, but that was pushback from my team, said we're moving, we're growing too fast and it's straining resources. And a lot, of the, so a lot of the questions we ask is what are the highest and best uses of our resources, you know, for the next two to four quarters? And then also having a sense, I think, of, um, you know, we kind of have a, a, a sort of two to three-year three roadmap. And so in some cases we look at things and say that is a good strategy for us, but we but that's not the strategy for right now. And I think some constraints on resources help you make those trade-offs. Um, and I think coupled with that is is a culture of, of being very clear and disciplined on um, and what makes financial and business sense and it's interesting in a mission-driven company. Sometimes people talk about the mission or the, the business performance. And I always, from the start of the company, those are one and the same. We do not change anything if we can't build financial power um, and financial success because that gives us control over our you know, the ability to say yes and no. And so we've been very, very good. And look, that's led from Leap, from Reese very clearly, Lauren Neustadter, who runs our scripted business, you know, we're very, very clear on on what makes a Hello Sunshine project and the convening around our creative choices and uh, and that we, we only take on what we know we have the capacity to execute with excellence. And, and that becomes, um, you know that that's a constant conversation. What what our organization has the capacity capacity to do? Why have you not taped a masterclass on how to build a successful startup? I mean, I look forward to watching that on Delta Airlines because you should tape a masterclass on that. Oh, I so uh, appreciate that. I mean that sincerely. I want to make a comment and then a final question. 
what yeah. I hear what I hear after listening to you for a half an hour and having spent 30 years in this leadership business is you as the condition setter in chief at Hello Sunshine, you've also set the conditions where team members who perhaps are more junior than you can come to you and say, Sarah, great idea, but we don't have the capacity to execute that. And you feel comfortable with that pushback or someone pushing on you saying, great idea, but Sarah, not now because here's what we're doing. Sounds like you had to develop a level of maturity, self-awareness, self-reflection, and vulnerability to hire people that have the confidence and the conditions and the courage to push back on you without retaliation, without fear, without fear retribution. That's not easy for every leader to do. Yeah, that is true. I mean, what I look, and it's a constant current conversation. You know, we're having a, we are really resource constrained right now. I mean, it's so funny. I'm literally having this conversation, you know, most of my Friday afternoon was, was a version of this conversation. And, you know, I do, I think it's one of the things I'm, proudest of. And, and I always want to say it, some of it's hard earned, you know, I do not get it right all the time. And I think that's important, right? And and the context here I, is also, you know, one of the big things I've learned in building this company is I don't think we've had a lot of workplaces um, and certainly the experience of a lot of my team, a lot of them come from really they've had really difficult work conditions, right? Difficult, mm -hmm. and some of it's only been clear in hindsight. <laughs> We've been having this different set of conversations in the last four or five years about the bias that exists in many workplaces and, you know, double or triple that up if you're a woman or a man of color or if you're disabled or if you're LGBTQI. Like, you come with, like, I think generations of, like, workplace trauma. I, I mean, I really believe that. And... You know, the hardest job as a leader, I think, has found how how long do you support someone to develop to be a better leader? And when do you have to say yeah. this person is not going to develop any any further? And so I just, this is, a, I'll connect the dot in coming back to your opening question is that, you know, I, none of us come to the, we're all works in process, none of us come to this fully formed and look, the only way I think to, to live up to our mission is to try and do the hard work of, of building a culture that you want to be better. And I don't think that work is ever going to be done. And you cannot do that if you don't own up to and name uh, when it's not working as well as you want it to. And all you can do is try. And I, I think you get a lot of credit from your teams as well, who the more that you are clear about the aspiration you have and that you are prepared to look under every stone and every corner. And look, that's emboldened, that's that's enshrined in our mission. You know, the number one thing, one of the first parts of our mission, we say, you know, no one is more important than our mission. And that includes me, right? And, you know, I, um, you know, I, I believe I'm the right person to run to run this company. Um, you know, we have the executive, all the executive team. I mean, I just have such an astonishingly great team, all the way down to assistants. And um, and but we will not make progress 
unless we get that right. And, you know, I'm really listening to our team right now in terms of how resource constrained we are. We're in, we're in a really difficult moment right now. You know, we're 100 plus days into a, into a strike um, in our business and that's affecting us and trying to look ahead and, and get visibility into what we think 24 will look like and then how do we set up our team and our resources in a way that when this strike ends that we... Um, can come out of it strongly and continue to 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 do the best that we can do to 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 live up to our mission. I mean, that's the conversation that I'm I'm in right now, and that's not happening with me. A lot of those conversations. What I'm proudest of is that we have really pushed that down into York, and that is, you know, that's happening with with someone's manager who might be a first-time manager, but they've spent six months going through a leadership. We've got a mid-career leadership development cohort um, that happens every six months with, you know, 15 to 18 mid-career leaders who often are in their first, man they've got their first management experience. And so I, the you know, part of the condition setter is transferring that down. And I love hearing that conversa tough conversations are happening. Um, and... You know, the last thing I'll say, maybe 18 months or two years into the company, we realised that we were all too polite. And so we started this, um, you know, we started this practice of sort of, and we did start at the executive team of raising the heat in conversations. Sometimes, like, we don't have any meetings after the meeting and sometimes we have a trust that we can hold heat in conversations and that means sometimes having really difficult yeah, conversations, yeah. frank conversations. Yeah. and But we had to really work at that. I mean, really, we still work at it. It was like, ah, what is not being said? I sense that, that there's real dissent here, but let's get it out on the table. And I'm, we've had a lot of those conversations, and, and um, but that's, you know, that work is never going to be done. Sarah, have you read Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor? Oh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. I mean, I... Yeah. I'm a real student of leadership. I listen. I mean, I listen to C-suite. I listened on leadership, but I, um, and I, um, I, you know, I have to read physically a lot for work. So most of the time, I, I listen um, uh, to a, a to. But radical candor is is one of my super favorites. Superb. Yeah. Okay, I'm super mindful of our time. One last question. I'm guessing your mailroom. Looks like a UPS center with inbound manuscripts coming in books and bouquets and baskets and all that. How does someone, how does someone get Hello Sunshine's attention? I mean, you take books and you transform them, bring them to life and all kinds of media. What, what does it take to get your attention? Is it all fiction? Is it some nonfiction? It's all women? Like, what's your, what does it take to get you to say, hmm, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. I mean, thank you for that. Firstly, I do not accept unsolicited material on LinkedIn. Don't send it. Don't send Honestly, it. Honestly, one of the hardest parts about the hardest parts about this job is there's so many worthy books. I mean, what I will say is if you're writing a fiction book that centers women's stories, we are considering it. We consider for Reese's Book Club. So, you know, we, I have a, a an outbound team. We have multiple scouts. We consider you know, hundreds and hundreds of books every month, backlist titles and others. We don't take pictures from authors. And I get think that's part of the, um, uh, there's no special access, right? And so we really try to make sure that we do, we take that responsibility very seriously of being very outbound. Um, and, you know, we also look at books that are not necessarily being published in the US, right? There's some books. So we, 
we if you've got a book that centers a woman's story, we are considering it. And by the way, people always talk about by women, for women. No, center women's stories. You can be a man and be considered sure. a male author. We do consider male authors as long as they do a really good job in in, um, in that. And look, ultimately for film and television pitches, for a whole bunch of legal reasons, it has to be submitted through, um, you know, through an agent throw. So, you know, we are repped on the film and TV side at CAA. Yep. And yep. Um, it's, it's tough because there are, um, there are gatekeepers. And in some cases that um, that protects us legally, but on the Reese's Book Club side, we are we are outbound um, considering that. I, I think the other thing we we have a pipeline program every year, both in on the book side and on the film and TV side, and so look out for those. Um, Lit up is our is our we we recognise that that we weren't seeing enough diversity in the manuscripts, and um, and the hardest thing we did a lot of research. The hardest thing is for authors is to get agented, and so Lit up's a program we. We um, call for submissions. If you've got a full manuscript um, written and you are um, a, basically a non-diverse uh, a, a woman, you can submit to Lit Up and we work with We Need Diverse Books. Uh, we get about a 1,000 manuscripts every year. Our, um, we consider them. We pick five fellows. They are paired with a Reese's Book Club author. They query agents. Our, I mean, one of the best parts about my job last week, our latest Lit Up class, all five of our Lit Up class, and these books are so good, um, have all gotten literary representation wow. and agents, which means wow. they can then take, the, take their books to auction and to the marketplace. And so, you know, we work hard, you know, both on the book side and on the film and TV side to have at least one pipeline program a year that has open submissions uh, in it. Your book and your masterclass are going to be great someday. Sarah Hardin, super generous. You went longer than Matthew McConaughey. Thank you for your time today. Such a delight to have you on our podcast. Sarah Hardin, uh, Chief Culture Center and CEO at Hello Sunshine. Appreciate you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm a huge fan and I really appreciate it today. Appreciate you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Leadership.